Good morning. For those that are visiting with us, we've been in a series in the Advent season looking at the word Sabbath or the concept of rest. It appears that in our culture, that this holiday season, we move so fast and we go to so many places and life gets so hectic that we forget that we are to rest in God, in ourselves, in other people, and in Jesus. So this morning we're looking at what it means to rest in ourselves. I want to remind everyone that is a part of GBC, we've been doing a fast and prayer for the last about 12 weeks. Well, when you get to Christmas, it'll be 12 weeks. Keep that up. Keep praying for the two questions and the two concepts we looked at. And you know, the word Advent, it talks about the coming of a notable person, thing, or event. That's what it means. And so in a Christian sense, it's about the coming of Christ, both past and future. We talk about the birth in Bethlehem, coming of a notable person, but also we think about the second coming. Amen? Now, that really means two things. Number one, we live with expectation and we live with anticipation. And the expectation and anticipation means then that we arrange our lives accordingly. If we really believe that he has come and is coming again, if we really believe that we're going to live in all eternity with him, then we make certain choices that are relevant here today, that are consistent with that thought. Now, one of the songs we sang this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, listen to the words, Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. And we can rest knowing that he's coming again. And we can rest knowing that when he does, he'll straighten out all this mess that sin has brought in his creation. Now I want to go back to a quote I had last week. We'll put it in the screen here. It's from Augustine, very old quote, because Augustine really gets at the heart of what it means to rest in ourselves. He writes these words, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Now, Augustine understood, and what's critical in our understanding is the direct relationship between resting in God and resting in ourselves. They cannot exist apart from each other. And so last week when we talked about resting in God, we looked at Sabbath rest, keep the Sabbath, honor God, trust God, worship God, resting our bodies, our emotions, our souls. All that is very relevant in what it means to rest in ourselves. Now, I want you to take God's word and turn to Genesis chapter 1. I want to start at the beginning because you hear me say all the time, starting points are critical. And I want you to think about three questions. The first question is, who is God? The second question is, how does God think about our world? Or the world, as we call it. And then the third question is, what is our response? So you can write them down or just catalog them in your head. Who is God? How does God think about the world and our response? And we have answers to this in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 1. 
And I'll catalog these verses, and we're just going to pick pieces out because there's something I want you to see. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who is God? He's the creator. He has created everything that we know and see, everything past, present, and future. Nothing exists without his creative abilities. So the very first thing that's spoken about God is that he's creative. That he is the creative one. But then through this whole creation, did you ever pick up this pattern? In verse 10, and God saw that it was good. In verse 18, and God saw that it was good. In verse 21, and God saw that it was good. In verse 25, and God saw that it was good. In verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. How does God think about the world? He says it's pretty good. In fact, he says it's very good. So who's God? He is the creative one. He's the creator of everything that we know. And his rendition, his statement upon this world is that it is good. He said that over and over and over again. Now, what about our response? When you realize who he is and you realize what he thinks about this world, we have two choices. First choice is we can live in harmony with good. We can agree with him. We can affirm his creative abilities. We can affirm that he is creator over everything. We can affirm that he believes that it is good. Or we can choose to steer it in our own direction. Just those two choices. We can trust him. We can honor him. We can be in an authentic relationship with him. We can be, as Paul says, imitators of him. He leads, not us. See, a lot of times, much of our religiosity is us leading him rather than him leading us. Around Christmas, many of us will hear uh, a very familiar old song called the Hallelujah Chorus. And one of the phrases that repeats itself over and over and over and over again is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. I have to think, why does it repeat so often? Because we have to get that into our heads, don't we? Because we like to reign. And we like to kind of not think about the forever. We think about the here and now. And then fear and other kinds of things enter into our beings and distracts us. From he is the creator and he sees this world as good. And then we try to steer it in our own direction. We try to create our own reality. And we start saying things like this. Well, this is how you see it, but this is how I see it. And we choose a life of our own making. Now, when you start reading through Genesis, you realize that Adam and Eve in chapter 3 chose to live outside the good. They chose to live in conflict. And that's where we get good versus evil. And we often call that the curse. But we also realize that Christmas is the cure. Amen? Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me make these observations about Genesis chapter 1 and 3. You note, and I think sometimes we forget this. We forget. 
We forget the story begins in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. It begins with, it is good, not the curse. The curse is death. It is sin. It's all temporary. It's not how God made this world. It's not how God intends this world to be. It's not how it will be someday. So starting points are critical for us. The story begins in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. Here's the second observation. No amount of sin can cancel out the good. No amount of sin can cancel out the good. Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so every single day we get a chance to write our stories. And in writing our stories, we either begin with the curse or we begin with the cure. We begin with it is good or we begin with the conflict between good and evil. But we get to write those stories every day. We make choices based upon Genesis 1 or Genesis chapter 3. Now let me review a little bit what we talked about last week. Remember the goal of the Sabbath was to rest. And we talked about our bodies. We talked about our emotions. We talked about our souls. But secondly, it was to become holy. And that's why God instituted it every single week, but also every seven years, all years, the Sabbath year. And then every 49 years and 50th, a year of Jubilee. And then we talked about the major feasts. There's seven, and they're not like our fellowship meals where we eat and run. They were sacred assemblies, many which lasted a full week. But the goal was to celebrate, affirm, and acknowledge the goodness of God. The goal of the Sabbath was always to go back to Genesis chapter 1. It is good. Here's what God intended. And we as the people of God lived that intention out in the midst of a Genesis 3 world. So the Sabbath was a point of focus that we remembered. And we reoriented our hearts. We would make sure that our thinking of God was where it ought to be. In Genesis chapter 1 and not Genesis chapter 3. The Sabbath was a place where we recalibrate our hearts with him and ourselves and with each other. And it's where we look at living in Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 3. There was a book written back in the 80s. It was a business book and it was a study of corporations that spent literally tens of thousands of dollars on outside experts coming in telling them what they needed to change. How many of those businesses, after paying that kind of money, made the changes that the consultants said they should make? And the knowing doing gap, as you guessed, was a gap between what we know and how we live. It's a gap between what we espouse, we say we believe, and how we behave. Now, in the business world, after they spent that kind of money, over 90% of the businesses took the information put it in a filing cabinet, and changed nothing. I thought, wow, isn't that an example of many of us living in Christ? Here's what we know. Here's what we believe. Here's what we study. But we put it in a file, and we put it away, and nothing changes. Another book called The Hypocritical Self talks about what we see in others and accuse them is often what we are guilty of. 
Jesus called it self-righteousness. See, it's living in Genesis chapter 3 and not Genesis chapter 1. It's living according to what we see in terms of sin in people and not in terms of the image of God in people. Genesis 3 living is, well, you know what it's like. Adam comes along and says, well, God, that woman that you gave me kind of pushes off the responsibility. And of course, when he looks at the woman, he says, you know that creature you created, God? Yeah, you're a creator, but it was that creature that deceived me. Now, it's not that we ignore sin. But the focus is always on the cure and not the curse. So what are the habits of our hearts that keep us from rest? You know, who do you believe and what do you believe? And I guess the question I want to ask this morning is, do you operate out of the curse or the cure? You know, what is your focus? What is your mentality in yourself? Because if it's always, here's what I did, and you focus on your sin and not the grace of God, you're going to live in Genesis 3. And you're going to see Genesis 3 and everyone around you. But if you live out the forgiveness and the grace of God and you realize the potential that exists in every single person, you're going to see the capability and the impossibility of God, creator God, and what he can do for that person that comes across your path. So do you operate out of the curse or the cure? It's a heart issue. And when I say it's a heart issue, it's our heads, what we believe, as well as our hearts. In Romans chapter 121, I talked about this last week. It says, for although they knew God, so they had all the right information, what did they not do? They didn't honor him as God. They didn't do the Sabbath rest or give thanks to him. See, honoring God and living in Genesis chapter 1, living in the cure causes thanksgiving. Living in Genesis 3 causes an ungrateful heart. But they came futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he's talking about people who have a knowledge about God here. Then verses 24 and 25, and you see this pattern down through chapter 1. The phrase is, therefore God gave them up, or God gave them over in some translations. In the lusts, in those dark desires of their hearts to impurities dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, Genesis 3, it's about us. In Genesis 1, it's about him. You hear me say all the time that we gather here to worship to an audience of one. But in religiosity, we gather here to worship ourselves and not the almighty creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. So my piece of advice to you this morning is this. Quit blaming everyone else for your Genesis 3 living. And look at your own heart. Now, if you were to go to the doctor and he does a series of tests. You know, things we don't like hearing are things like this. You got high cholesterol. (laughs) Or your triglycerides. I have no idea what they are, but if they're off, it's not a good thing. They talk about hypertension. Those three are what they call the big enemies of the heart. That if you have those in disproportionate amounts, you need to do something to get them where they ought to be so it doesn't damage your heart. 
Think about the enemies of the heart in terms of living Genesis 1 versus Genesis 3. I recently read a book. It was called Enemies of the Heart by Andy Stanley. And he addressed four enemies in that book. Now there's more, but I think these are absolutely critical. And we'll see them here on the screen in a moment. There's guilt. I owe you. There is anger. You owe me. There's greed. I owe me. And there's jealousy. God owes me. Think about those in your life. And think about what it's like to live in Genesis 3 with those. Guilt. You think about your past sin. You think about what you did. And you think about how can anyone ever undo. You think about anger. And we always say things like this. You know, well, you make me angry. Well, the truth is we allow anger into our hearts because, well, that person may have done some very unjust stuff to us. We get to choose how we react. Of course, greed is that sense of entitlement. Everybody around owes me and jealousy. We get angry at God. And we start saying things like God owes me. Four enemies. Now, I have the book here. And you know me, sometimes I hand books out. Um, I guess I give them away. The only rule is that after you read it, you give it to somebody else. Who would like to read this book and deal with those four enemies? Okay, I see a couple down here. You had your hand up first. Okay. Okay, she said she gets it next. There you go. It's an easy read. Enjoy. Now, think about these four enemies. We can live with these according to Genesis 3 or Genesis 1. We can live with them according to the curse or the cure. See, the curse says this. I'm going to hang on to those enemies. Now, we don't mean to, but we end up nurturing them. And we hang on to them. And we become the very thing that disgusts us. The cure says... I'm going to let the power of God's forgiveness enter into my life. I'm going to be generous and accept the generosity of God and be a generous person. I'm going to celebrate who God is and what he's doing in my life and what he's going to do in other people's lives. I'm going to live a life out in the open. See, the curse, we live a life that's closed and we hide. See, the cure emphasizes the grace of God through the sacrifice of his son. And the word grace stands for gift. And the gift is that we are accepted before we become acceptable. I'm going to say that again because you need to get that because the curse just changes that and flips it around. See, grace says that we are accepted before we become acceptable. The curse reverses that and says you have to be acceptable before being accepted. That's why Jesus writes these words, Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now let me unpack Genesis chapter 1, thinking and living for a bit in the term of grace. First thing is grace is pardon. Okay? Grace is pardon. It's about forgiveness. It's our answer to guilt and shame. It's something that God does for us and in us that we cannot do for ourselves. 
It's about an unpayable debt that God gives us. And yet this is something very hard and difficult for us. And we'd rather live in Genesis 3 when it comes to us forgiving other people rather than us releasing the power of God through us. And this is often subtle. I think sometimes we don't understand that we probably aren't as, un, as forgiving as we ought to be. A lesson of this I learned when I went to Zimbabwe to preach at some churches. And I started talking about forgiveness. And the pastor afterwards said, he goes, we need to hear that. I says, why? He goes, for whatever reason, down through the years, what we picked up from the American missionaries is that we never had to forgive until someone asked for forgiveness. And I says, wow. We really taught them a bad lesson. Did we mean to? No. We probably had the right words. But what they picked up in us was the fact that we would only forgive under certain conditions. That's not how God treats us, is it? His grace and forgiveness is unconditional. Number two, grace is acceptance. We're reunited with God. We're affirmed and loved by God. We realize the value that God places on us. Grace is power. It's a spiritual energy. It frees us to move from Genesis 3 to Genesis 1. It moves us towards our true self, our created self. It moves us from the curse to the cure. And grace is gratitude. It frees us from those enemies, from greed and jealousy and anger. And we see life not as entitled, but rather as a gift. That's what grace means. If we are gracious people, we are gifted people. And we view life as a gift, not as an entitlement. And while we're aware of the lavish generosity of God, we're blown away. And so we live out this lavish generosity. Now remember, I said quit blaming others. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everything's your fault. I know many people here this morning have and are and will face incredible injustice. But by quit blaming other people, what you're doing is you're letting go of the control they have over you. That's why when they've done studies of addiction, someone who's been raised in an abusive alcoholic home often become alcoholics. Why? Well, I've walked with many people that are raised in homes like that. And here's what the kids say growing up. They say, you know, I never want to be like my dad. I never want to be like my mom. And in their anger, they say, I will never, I will never become a drunk. I will never do this to my kids or to my spouse. And they say that over and over and over again. And then they become the very thing they focus on. Do you see the relationship? They chose to live in Genesis 3, not Genesis 1. We become what we give our attention to. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, we become the very thing that we claim we despise. See, Genesis 3 living says, well, look what they did, or I deserve, or you owe me. But Genesis 3 leads to death. It leads to death in our relationships, with our families, 
with our marriages, in our work, in our churches, it leads to death in terms of ourself. And so often I know far too many Christians sitting in the darkness and they, in the quiet moment, ask these kinds of questions. What's wrong with me? Why doesn't anyone like me? Why doesn't anyone understand me? Why am I so alone in the midst of a crowded room? Why can't I enjoy the incredible grace of God? It's because they're living in Genesis 3. They're living with the curse and not the cure. Genesis 1 living, it embraces the miraculous grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 1, we just don't sing with our voices or listen to the Hallelujah Chorus, but in our soul, in the depths of our being, we shout, King of King and Lord of Lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. He is my king. He is my Lord. He reigns in me. I have many friends that this holiday season is one of their worst. I know for many that were raised in what we might call nice families. It's a celebration time and you should celebrate and you should party and you should enjoy but I got too many people still living with a curse. And it's a tough place because of things that have happened and because of experiences when they grew up and because of their own sins. And I think you and I know, at least up here, we don't often emotionally take it to our hearts that the first Christmas was quite different. You have an unwed pregnant teenager. And if she chooses to believe the angel, she will live a lifetime of humiliation and speculation. I mean, we all know what gossip and rumors are like. And we all know how we judge people based upon what we hear and say. And we never take the time to sit down and hear their stories. And sometimes even when we we take the time to hear their stories, we don't believe their stories. I mean, we have a hard enough time with the Holy Spirit today. (laughs) One can only imagine if a young teenage mother says, hey, by the way, it's his baby. How do we respond to that? But think about the family disgrace that she would experience for a lifetime. I want to read a quote from Philip Yancey. We're going to put it in the screen as well. That really stimulated, it came from a meditation that he wrote back in 2012. Here's what he says. The Virgin Mary, though, whose parenthood was unplanned, had a different response. She heard the angel out, pondered the repercussions, and replied, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Often a work of God comes, listen to this, with two edges. Great joy and great pain. And in that matter-of-fact response, Mary embraced both. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of the personal costs. Now, many of you have been fasting and praying for four categories that we've listed. And in a moment, we're going to close together by praying a prayer from scripture, but I want to unpack that prayer. 
So before we pray it, I want to look at it and we'll put it in the screen here. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul begins this prayer saying this. For this reason, I bow my knees. What's this reason? Well, you know, he started out in Ephesians with, I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. See, that's Genesis 1 living. It's realizing that God is the creator, that he is the king of king and the Lord of lords. It's, it's a heart that goes over and lives in a gracious gifts mentality, in a gracious, generous mentality, in a, in a life that just lets go those enemies of the heart that we cling on to and nurture. So it's for all these reasons. And he goes down through these theological things. You can take the time to read sometime. But he says, this is the reason I bow my knees. Let's be honest. We have a hard time bowing our knees, don't we? I'm not talking about physically. I know for me, my age, I get on my knees. It's hard to get back up. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. How we submit ourselves to the king of kings and the lord of lords. How we admit that he is and will reign forever and ever. But we struggle with that even in our worship. Bowing ourselves to an audience of one. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Think about that for a moment. I read this past week, someone sharing their story. It's in a book. And it's about a young woman who at the age 30 found out that she was adopted. Never knew it. And she went back through and found her adoption papers and realized that didn't know who the dad was. And one of the things that struck her so profoundly was the fact when she read baby's name, said unnamed unnamed and it crushed her until she realized that God named her and she went to some Old Testament scriptures and some New Testament scriptures and realized that you know what God gave her a name that's above all other names that's what he gave Jesus but Jesus cares for you and he names you and you may feel unworthy you may feel unnamed But note that from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The creator God is saying that. That according to the riches of his glory. Now I want to ask the question, how many of you feel poor? (laughs) We feel poor when we live in Genesis 3. Ever notice that? We never have enough. Never have enough money never have enough attention, never have enough of whatever it is that we live in Genesis 3. But think about the riches of his glory. Think about the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Think about the eternal life and the possibilities. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, okay? And now Paul acknowledges that life is tough here. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So many times we, we sit among each other and we don't share what's really deep down in our souls. We put the masks on. We dress up nice. 
We put on the red ties. <laughs> Although I'm a little nervous this morning because I have this recollection back in a church where I wore my red tie and I upset somebody because they said it looked like a dog's tongue. I thought, well, at least all the dog lovers are happy this morning. Uh, Think about being strengthened in your inner being. I I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know who you are or what's going on inside, but I can guarantee you that some of you are sitting there and you are feeling very, very much alone. You're living in Genesis 3 and not Genesis 1. So that God, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Think about Christ dwelling in our hearts and how incredible and amazing that is. It's not Christ, the child in the manger, it's Christ in us. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, it's Genesis 1 living, not Genesis 3, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. It's a collective response. This American individualism that we got to do on our own, it doesn't exist in God's kingdom. We are surrounded by people. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, both past and present and future. We're in this together, and we're called to build each other up, not tear each other down. We're called to live in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. The world's really good at Genesis 3. They're good at tearing down. They're good at beating up. They're good at violence. But we're called to be different. By the way, the word saint, you might say, I'm not a saint. Yes, you are if you're a Christian because the word saint just means holy one. You say, I'm not very holy. Well, the word holy means set apart. You are set apart for God's kingdom. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Yeah, I love that phrase because it's one of those things that you cannot describe. If you try to put words to it, you just can't. That's why in the Old Testament, I think we have some really weird stuff. Like Elijah, where he talks about these spinning wheels and different kind of heads and everything else. I think he saw something way beyond our ability to describe, and he did his best job at it. That's all came out. So here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to think of a time when God moved in your life in an incredible way. It may be a time that you cannot describe with words. And every time you do, people look at you strange. (laughs) But I want you to just think about that. Do you have it in your head? I want you to reflect upon it. I want you to embrace it. I want you to live in that moment. See, Genesis 3 living, we embrace our sin and we live in our sin and we feel bad and guilty and all those kinds of things and we just rehearse it. Don't rehearse that. Rehearse what God has spoken into your life. So whatever you're thinking right now, take it with you today and just keep rehearsing it over and over again. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, that's a promise. And I love this phrase here. I know we say God answers prayer, and I know we say we have faith, but I think we often become faithless on this next part of the prayer. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, 
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is Genesis 1 living people. Okay. I broke down the prayer. You ready to pray it? You know, why don't we honor God by standing? They do that with the Hallelujah Chorus. But let's just stand together in prayer. And let's pray this together. Pray with me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May we respond like Mary. We are the Lord's servant. May be to us as you have said. And may we learn to rest in God and then rest in ourselves. The future is bright because our Lord is awesome. Amen. Go in God's grace. You're dismissed.